Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. Splits. We're really genuinely excited because it's kind of about Brexit, but not really about Brexit this week, as we talk about both Labour and Tory defectors. Plus our thoughts on Sajid Javid. And the back half, Kate and Tom talk to us about Alan Partridge. Stephen, there's actually news. I really can't I can't tell you how excited I am by the concept that actually things are changing in British politics. I know I probably shouldn't get carried away. As we're recording this, we've just had three Tory MPs have left. Are they left definitely to join TIG? They have left to join the independent group. Can we not? Are we not allowed to call it TIG? I think TIG is kind of cool. I was going to do a kind of... To catch up any of our listeners who've been living under a rock... Seven Labour MPs on Monday split from the Labour Party. They were joined on Tuesday night by Joan Ryan, an eighth Labour MP. They have been joined literally minutes before we sat down in the podcast chamber by three Conservative MPs. So let's run through this. the original seven. So Chukramuna, MP for Streatham, who was the kind of ringleader of the original seven. Gavin Shuka, who you've said in your piece this week is the kind of, he used to be a pastor and actually has been really quietly efficient behind the scenes and kind of giving people therapy about what they kind of need to do to break from the party. Well, yeah, he he very much was one of the people who kind of, because obviously right, there are three routes, but I'm going to discuss <laughs> just a third later on. There are two routes if you are an MP who, who doesn't want Corbyn to, to be Prime Minister and doesn't want a Conservative government either. You do a Tristram Hunt, kind of like go and, you know, run some kind of thingy bobby, get another... Who I saw at the theatre last night looking in the absolute pink of hell so it's really agreed with him you're going to run the vna yeah i mean or... doesn't he always didn't he i mean when did he ever not look in the it's true the man must moisturize in he's the, always in looked, the looked healthy peak of health. or you decide that you are going to try and do something about it and uh, he was kind of one of the people who was most persuasive uh, in terms of the way the other the other seven tell it and some of the people who have stayed behind who, who've thought about it have all said well actually look the person I found hardest to go no no you're wrong to was was Gavin which was slightly surprising I think to them because he's not someone with a particularly large profile even within the PLP. No but he's uh, he's Christian right he comes from that kind of background as you say he's a pastor he chairs the APPG on prostitution for example I, I want to say he's on the women and equality select committee but I don't know whether or not I've just made that up because yeah. but you know he's got a kind of interesting profile of of interests okay so next Luciana Berger which I think you know her reasons for leaving you know she's had to have armed guards because of the threats to far-right anti-Semitic activists were, were jailed over over threats to her. You know, Yeah, and the party it. didn't pass on details of threats to her. Her last tweet, it turns out, as a Labour MP was, uh, 
you know, why does it take you know, media attention to to get these these cases actually kicked out? So she's left, uh, you know, partially because of frustration over that. Mike um, Gapes, known for having long wars on Twitter with Corbynites, right? Uh, yeah, primarily about his dissatisfaction over foreign policy in general. As with Corbyn, foreign policy is his passion project. And then Angela Smith, who I think well, we'll come back to in a minute. Well, actually, let's let's do, so deal we, with Angela Smith because she's not someone that people have massively known about. She raised some ripples in Westminster a couple of weeks ago when Corbyn wouldn't take her intervention when he was he was pretty sure she was going to start asking him about a second referendum. So yeah, she's two thousand and five intake, an intake which was famously you know on the right of the the Labour Party. The right of the Labour Party did very well in those selections, but she very much has been someone who I think people would have considered lobby fodder under that government, you know, was a PPS to Yvette Cooper briefly before returning to the backbenches. A lot of her criticisms are more about economic policy, but also again on, you know, she she's, uh, you know, kind of, I'm trying to think of a non-loaded word because I know if I say belligerent, people are going to complain, but I can't think of another synonym and I'm really quite tired, so I'm just going <laughs> to say belligerent. Yeah. Yeah, which has a more kind of a bellicose, wow, that's another loaded one, but foreign policy position than 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 Corbyn. She's more interventionist than Corbyn. That's one, and that's also loaded in the other direction, but now I've irritated all of our listeners, so right, we, there we, can, go. So we can a, move on. We are truly are the independent group of podcasts in that everyone um, hates us. But talk me through this, because I... I've been trying to stay away from Twitter because of my need to retain my sanity. But she went on Politics Live, the replacement for the Daily Politics, and said something about racism doesn't just apply to Jewish people, it also applies to people no, who... No, so she said, as we've seen... She basically said, it, as we've seen, it doesn't just apply to so she, people, whether or not you're black, brown, or have, you know, a funny tinge. She trailed off before she got to the the tinge point. But she basically was saying, oh, look, it's not just people with a... With you know, who with non-white skin, look at what's happened to, to Jewish people in the Labour Party. Yeah, obviously a a very clumsy and and racist thing to say. She then apologised, and it was a fairly suboptimal kind of like you know. I'm, this is not I'm who sorry, I am. Sorry, I misspoke. This is not who I am. I think yeah, almost anyone who's been you know of an ethnic minority for a long period of time it will have you know summoned images images and memories of when someone usually of a you know of a certain age or above says something sort of crass and clumsy and then you have to spend time reassuring them that you're not offended but you know that they haven't done something terrible which is just always exhausting and, and enervating um right all, all of that said it, it was i just think straightforwardly distasteful watching people who have managed to have an astonishing tin ear about things like Jim Sheridan going, I used to be sympathetic to the Jewish community, but no longer being let in and going, yeah, I'm not sorry, people were overreacting. Or people who've gone, oh, well, you know, the mural, anyone could have defended that by accident. Gone, oh, but I don't understand why people are are, are worried by this English irony comment. Suddenly developing bat-like hearing about it is just distasteful and those people need to I mean but I think it does kind of speak to this slightly grim problem we have in political discourse where we theoretically and this is one of the many sad things about Labour's failure to deal with anti-semitism in its grasses its rhetorical approach and whether or not it has committed to it and I don't think it really has of putting education first is actually fundamentally a good one Mm. if you take say the way they handled the case of Hugh Gaffney a man of a certain age who referred to our fundraiser? He went. I'd rather be at home with a with a chinky, as in you know a, a, Chinese, a Chinese takeaway. takeaway. Yeah. yeah, where you know he apologised again, not a great apology. 
he you know, went for to be trained and talked about why you should not do that. And I think that is the appropriate and useful sanction. And then ideally, if people would come back with a proper apology afterwards, that would be even better. But, but Nashar we in- is another example, Nash- right? Nashar posted things which were undoubtedly anti-Semitic on her Facebook feed. Yeah. And she went, you know, okay, totally fair point. You've caught me. I'm going to go away and educate myself. And that's what you want. But I think there's a, an inevitable problem with sexual harassment in Parliament being the obvious analogy, is, which is exactly the same, right? Which is, the test is whether or not you notice it when your side are doing it. Like, it's very easy to point out something that someone else has done wrong when it's for factional advantage, but actually then to be completely blind to your own side. And that's what I found a bit distasteful about the pile-on onto Angela Smith. As you say, undoubtedly, an incredibly crass comment which would have triggered a lot of people's I think that point about having the burden that you expect non-white people to pay in not only having to explain why something is wrong, but also reassure, like, do the work of kind of gardening someone else's feelings is is a really huge one. But it's not the same as the leader of the party not passing on death threats to somebody who's already faced death threats to letting people back into the to the party who have said undoubtedly anti-Semitic things. Like, it's just... Yeah, I mean, this is things. They're obviously not similar degrees of magnitude, but also, right, it does create this significant problem where I feel like in politics we, in theory, have a nuclear sanction if someone says something racist. In practice, because of the existence of this nuclear sanction, which is very rarely actually appropriate, it is never used when it is appropriate, never used when it's inappropriate, and instead you have this kind of thing where, you know, a, a party, you know, in which there, there are people, yeah, you know, I mean, like, yeah, you know, in which, like, no one is is really rewarded or encouraged to behave like now Shah. And then Ruth George says, maybe the new party's funded by Israel and basically gets to go, whoops, I, 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 I didn't mean to put it like that. And it's like, what is the order of words you could have put? You know, rearrange those words into a non-deeply offensive statement. No, I meant in front of Israel in and a good way. And once again, they, yeah, she also did a kind of like, you know, basically, this is not who I am. It's like, you are what you do. Harumph, harumph. Yeah. So the- no, I think it's really. Inter- I think it's one of those things about categories. Also, I also think everybody individually in that round may not have intended the way they are, but it's the sort of strange flattening effect of online discourse, right? Is that it just looks like a, a, a cacophony, and there's no attempt to kind of calibrate it. I mm. remember when I used to sub things back on my in my tabloid days, there was a kind of formulation of critics say. Blah 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 blah, and there is no attempt, therefore, for the purposes of your story, to den- to denote whether or not it's the head of the Church of England or some rando on Twitter. Oh right? yeah, like this new genre of like you know now millennials hate friends, where it's someone tweeting like watching friends on Netflix, love the show, but wow, wow, <laughs> Ross is creepy, like, <laughs> yeah, right. and it's just like that's not really someone slamming friends. Is but it? also, you can see then they do those stories on Mail Online that they've done a search for like hate friends because those words are in bold in all the tweets that they screen grabbed. It's yeah. like, well, you can find anyone with any opinion on the internet. Like this is yeah. yeah. Anyway, we could so that okay, um, we dealt with that. So n- number five in the in the in the original Gang of Seven, Chris Leslie again, someone who had long been spoken of as a someone who was was planning a split, had been saying to privately things like you know. Labour no longer exists, you know, formally essentially a kind of like model brown eye, you know, elected unexpectedly in 1997, you know, the famous anecdote of him winning Shipley, Shipley in that huge landslide, Shipley, which hadn't returned a Conservative MP since, had returned to Conservative MP since 1950, and Tony Blair saying, gosh, that guy looks like the spitting image of the person who does Gordon's photocopying and someone going, that, that in fact is the... 
the guy who does uh you know came, came in you know rose up the ranks to be a you know to junior ministerial level lost his seat in 2005 when you had the it's one of those weird things where i realize we we still talk about the 2005 election in the expectations of the time so i we kind of talk about it like you know this unwinding of the mm. blair landslide which obviously it was but obviously it also is a majority of 66 one which if you wow. offer that to like literally any politician now they would bite both your arms head legs and torso off to to be given spent five years out chaired gordon brown's leadership campaign not i suspect the most difficult of jobs was you know was you're so sassy when you're tired had his had his entry into into parliament facilitated by the good old-fashioned labor shortlist stacking where you basically kind of go like chris leslie or a dog (laughs) yeah chris leslie what's it gonna be guys i think my favorite one is when occasionally local labor parties will i mean i'm not gonna name the mp because it's unnecessarily cruel but a local party where the and yeah where they a voted for them but in the words of several people there they were essentially just really clear it's like look we understand what's been done here and we have decided that we are sufficiently angry about the way you've handled this that we are going to punish you by sending someone who barks at the moon to uh, <laughs> to become an mp but chris Lizzie was also facing deselection wasn't he and this is yeah. the thing and and Chuka's local party had moved to essentially a much more demanding way of voting it was like a one member one vote rather than using a general committee so i'm not going to go into well, it yeah, but like they were all like both of those two mps were really under serious trouble well yeah so one mp who has not made the leap but who is you know a corbyn skeptic you know was comparing it to you know joining isis and they were saying well they're they're like at-risk communities right they're indices of radicalization right you're like they're like you know, so not everyone they're like you know obviously not everyone who like you know who's been hit by austerity joins isis they said but ultimately most people who are you know have no qualifications but weak family ties etc etc and they and basically your indices of radicalization in in this mp's analogy are you know you know do you believe not only that there's a problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but that he is at best intensely relaxed about it and at worst actively, you know, kind Jeremy of... Jeremy Corbyn, you mean? Yeah, mm. fond of it. Opposition to Brexit, opposition to him on economic policy, and opposition to him on foreign security policy. Now, base... And, and, oh, and then the final one being, are you at some level of pressure locally? And essentially all of the seven, original seven, and indeed the, the eighth, Joan Ryan, the MP for Enfield North, fit that group... So, of course, is Anne Coffey, but in many okay, ways... Okay, so Anne Coffey's number... Well, I can't remember what number we're on. She's, we, we kind of cheated because I just did Joan Ryan, but she's notionally seven. So she was the seventh of the original ones. So she was the one that was surprising, and it was a good lesson in expectation management, which was that from Sunday night, there'd been this sort of swilling round of the idea that people might leave, and people were talking about four, mm-hmm. and then there was... You had named six in your column the previous week. So the fact there was a cheeky seventh was actually... It was a kind of classic, you know, that thing... I'm not going to lie. The, the fact that I didn't name Anne Coffey is a source of considerable pain to me. Okay, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry about that. But it reminded me of the Theo Bertram, who used to work for Brown and Blair, did a blog about... Exp- you know, we oh, we, we were never expecting to win, blah. You know, the thing you do on election night. Like, you set what the, the terms of what you think success are deliberately lower so that you can argue that you got over it. And I think getting seven when everyone expected six was a coup for them, right? Yeah, I don't know. So the weird thing is, is it actually feels like the consensus in the press gallery at least maybe just the bit i talk to or the bit i've been on tv with in the last however many days actually is like oh you know 20 quite seven's quite small we were expecting more yada 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 which i mean i think is a misread for a number of reasons but yeah it, it was a kind of surprise and also in terms of whether or not they can get other labor mps to make the leap the fact that Anne coffee is in many ways like very 
although she's you know she's older, so she's contemplating retirement. She was one of the people who moved the motion of no confidence in him in 2016. She's more ideologically opposed to him than lots of MPs, but in lots of ways, she is the kind of um, average Labour MP, right? She worked in the public services as a social worker. She was her unison rep before she went into Parliament. She's mainly campaigned on issues relating to her previous life. That is essentially the profile of the average Labour MP who does not make the news, who we don't hear about. And I think it is basically this the thing, you, yeah, in terms of indices of radicalisation, do you see people who have made the leap right. and go, oh, they're like me? And there are lots of Labour MPs who, who don't like Chucker because they're like, oh, he's glamorous, he's been promoted too quickly. Right, they don't you like know. Chris Leslie because they're like, he's just, you know, out for himself. Again, he's always, like, he's rent a quote. promoted too quickly. Yeah. Luciana, again, a Labour dynast. Mike Gapes and Angela Smith who are, you know, ideologues and care about this is the thing you've got to remember the average Labour MP does not spend a lot of time on foreign policy their foreign policy isn't they quite like Europe and they don't like war essentially that's the average Labour MP's view and so I think the presence of someone who is well liked in the PLP and people feel is more of them I think is is, is significant in terms of whether or not that pulls more people over. Can I ask you the country question though which is that actually having the three Tories Anna Subri, Heidi Allen and Sarah Wollaston Sarah Wollaston come and join that grouping too is that actually a, a kind of prophylactic against more Labour MPs joining them because will there be people who will be reluctant to join a a group that's seen to have Tories in it rather than a kind of real Labour in exile group. So it works both ways, right? So there are some Labour MPs who before were saying, I'm not interested in a split if we can't get Conservative MPs to join because if we can't get Conservative MPs to join, it's just a Labour split, it just hurts the Labour Party, and then we just end up with a Tory government. I don't want mm. him as Prime Minister, I don't want the Tories in office, so the only reason why I'm interested in this is if I think we can genuinely succeed and so for some MPs the presence of some Tories is a proof of concept however the crucial thing I think is what those Tory MPs now go on to say about economic policy the interesting thing in their letter is one of the things they have said isn't they what they don't like about Theresa May's political decisions is that it imperils the option of ending austerity now, basically, if those Tory MPs and two of them, and this is why I think Subri is in some ways the, you know, in terms of like... Subri's the outlier, isn't she? Because Heidi Allen has been consistently, for example, on things like welfare and benefits, very ill at ease with where Tory policy has been. Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing with Heidi Allen is that, you know, it's odd. So several Tory ministers were saying to me, oh, I don't think she'll leave. You know, one Treasury official said she's the most expensive backbencher in history because she was in this position of power. This also was one of the things which irritated a lot of Tory MPs because they basically felt she stood up and went, why am I so much nicer than the rest of you but it meant what tax credits oh basically any issue of of social policy and government spending but of course meant that she is newsworthy for was newsworthy because she was of the tribe but weirdly not of it on on their central thing but so i think you know heidi allen can quite quite comfortably sit with those people on economics sarah williston maybe that's just a real kind of austerity nimby's thing you know this is of course the problem that osborne and hammond have had since 2015 and it's really easy to get tory mps to vote for sound decisions in the abstract it's quite hard to get them to sign off individual cuts and anywhere near them but has been someone advocating for higher NHS spending and being very critical of of the cuts in her immediate sphere but Anna Subri is quite right wing 
But I think the thing for her is that for her, it's part of the from talking to people around her that it's it's part of her anti-Brexit argument, right? Because one of the ways that she said that, that I think to people that the Labour MPs have it easier when fighting Brexit is they can say, "Don't let this Tory Brexit go through." And by attaching the you know word Tory at the front of it, then automatically their constituents are like, "Well, we don't like Tories, so we don't like this Brexit." And actually, there's that's an argument that as a Tory MP you can't make. Like you know, it's it's just very hard to kind of sell that message. So it will make for her to have a cleaner message. Here's the party that I. I think is doing this so badly that I've left is kind of proof of concept that that she thinks their Brexit strategy is is appalling. But yeah, so I think, you know, it it basically really does depend on what those MPs say about the economy over the coming coming weeks. But they might also not turn into a party, right? I mean, no, their plan is to, you know, their plan is not just to stand up and go, we hate everyone else. We don't like everyone else. Their, you know, their plan is, you know, they feel, as Gavin Tuka says in my piece this week, then, you know, you, you have to, if you're an MP, if you feel that way, try and offer some kind of plan B, even if the plan B, you know, goes down in flames, which many of them privately concede is the most likely outcome. Can you tell me how long it took from the SDP leaving to then becoming a proper kind of political party? And uh, having two policy? months. They left in January 1981 and they formed a new party in March. Now, from a from a kind of publicity perspective, right, you know, the, the thing that this party is badly going to need if it's going to grow as a national force is to maximise its unearned media, right? It's obviously got a huge bit of, you know, yeah, a huge bit of media attention from its launch, huge bits of media attention from its kind of second and third waves of, of splitters offers. And because it's a private company, it's not a party per se, it doesn't have to declare its funding sources, so it might very well have quite decently deep pockets in terms of buying and spending well i mean i also think right but yeah they they, they will become a proper party with all the tools, but yeah weirdly people keep you know i obviously get lots of questions about politics all the time but the question that i'm most surprised by in my opinion is people going but where are they going to get money from and i mean it's just like i mean the labor party is led by someone who wants to remake our economic model in a way which will uh, make losers of many of the people who are the beneficiaries of our current economic model and the conservative party wants to take us out of the single market which will also upend our economic model so the one thing this i mean there are many reasons why i think this party might not succeed but lack of cash is deaths not going to be one of them. One of my big reasons about why they might not succeed is I just fear the banter of Theresa May and I think if she gets any kind of deal through she'll briefly look like she's actually really pulled off an amazing coup you know until we obviously the deal then has crunches through several more really tough stages it, you know I think it will ultimately be worse than what we already have blah 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 but it will look in politics terms in that stupid Westminster Village way like she has triumphed and I think at that point flushed with triumph she might call the general election and all of these guys, maybe with the exception of Chuka, I don't know, but still, if they, yeah, will lose their seats. But then I think if you know, if, they, if anti-Brexit activists couldn't get Kate Hoey out in Vauxhall last time, then I don't really fancy the chances of anybody standing as an independent. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the thing, isn't the when the SDP did that, and it, yeah, there's, it is a it is the sensible thing to do from a like maximising your chances of success to go, we've split. We're like a weird holding pattern. Oh, look, we're a political party, you know, however many, a couple of months later, so you get your, your second bite of the cherry. It is, however, a much less risky in 1981 because you had a stable government which knew it was at the earliest going to the polls two years later. And considering its poll position when the SDP lost, well, there was a good chance it was going to, to use that final year of the Parliament Act as well. Now, there's a possibility, of course, this the, the government collapses or, you know, so three Tory defectors, I think, is 
basically the maximum amount at which point the government can kind of semi just go, I'm still standing and, and flop about a bit. If they have an election now, they will, of course, all be, be, be swept away. Yeah, because they will be standing as real independents. They'll be, you know, if, if, if either of the political parties have, have any, the other political parties have any brains in their heads, they will, um, they will of course, run other independents in their seats to kind of further hmm. decrease the chances. And they will only be of use to people like me who enjoy prosecuting the argument and there ain't no thang as a personal vote. That's true. That's really going to get a real boost from, from that. Um, um, we, have to, we have to wrap up because we have been talking about this for a really long time. Is there anything else that you think people are not discussing enough about this? So I think basically... Obviously, most of them I kind of go, look, there are flaws with polling, but it's it's better than hunch. This, I think, is actually one of the weird examples where that is not the case. One of the things which was really important in 2017 was that most people did not know who Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May were in a detailed sense. They knew that Labour had been led by someone who was different from other leaders, and then this had upset some people in his party, but they didn't know much else than that. And they knew that the Conservatives were led by someone who seemed like a bit less posh than the last guy and seemed like solid and like she wouldn't do anything crazy. And they knew that the Lib Dems existed, but weren't they now led by some, like, maybe ginger bloke? And what happened in the course of the campaign was that people ended that campaign with a much more positive view of Corbyn than they had at the start, a much less positive view of May, and... uh, And they thought Tim Fan was a homophobe who hated abortion. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, basically, because no one knows who any of these people are, although we can assess from the polls and the number of people saying that they would consider it what the overall size of the pool they are fishing in is, really... The best like instinct of whether or not this thing can succeed in any way, shape, or form is to eyeball the 7, the 8, the 9, the 10, the 11, or however many it is by the time you're listening to this, and go, how do I think this group of people will perform in the heat of an election campaign when they are introduced to the public? So actually, this is, I think, one of the few times in which, like, going, actually, I'm going to park the polls and go, hmm... What do I think, how do I think this grouping will survive that scrutiny is probably going to be a more useful yardstick for how they do. Okay. I think because we talked for so long, we're not going to have time to do You Ask Us. So can we just both briefly state that we don't think that Saeed Javid was right to strip Shamima Begum of her citizenship and it is a terrible precedent to set? Yeah. Right. I just think human rights are human rights. Your citizenship is not conditional on you being a good person. You can't use... Ultimately, like, there is not a solution to the question of IS fighters that goes... Well, I'm sure it'll be fine, and Lebanon will just be able to take all of all of that single-handedly. And yeah, we, we're not going to worry about the the situation between Kurdish fighters and Turkey. And I mean, that will have no problems for anyone else in the world. It's just irresponsible. Also, deeply that we immoral. could send her to to Bangladesh, a country that she's not lived in in her adult life, as far well, she's not barely, she's barely an adult. Yeah. And that one of the things that we do, we do know about Islamic terror is that it is exported. That it is by, by definition an international phenomenon. Like. It's it's wildly irresponsible. It's basically pandering to the worst bits of their base. I'm sure they wouldn't do it if she... I was thinking about the parallel with Decca Mitford, uh, who ran off to the Spanish Civil War with Esmond Romilly, and you know the Prime Minister sent a warship to get her back. I just feel like if this was another situation, it wasn't Islamic terror and it wasn't a Muslim young woman, that would be treated very differently. I think that's true. I do also think, however, to me, the central thing is this is a situation where the government knows full well that what it is doing is going to make it more likely that terror is exported to Syria's neighbours and to the wider world, including the United Kingdom. It knows and it is sending a terrible message, and it is doing so in order to avoid a literal one bad news cycle 
and to slightly facilitate the chances of Sadiq Javid becoming Conservative leader. Yeah. And it wants to position that as it being strong and tough-headed. Actually, it is being, it is being weak and wicked. Harumph. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. And now Tom and Kate join us for the back half to talk about Alan Partridge. Hello and welcome to the back half with me, Tom Gatti. And me, Kate Mossman. This is our little space, safe space, carved out of the Politics of the New Statesman podcast, very kindly by um, Helen Lewis and, and Stephen Bush to allow us a little space to discuss the culture and the arts. A safe space. For the so it's, arts. it's very safe, yeah. <laughs> so, Kate, what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, the Return of Alan Partridge, which is coming to the screens at the end of this month, and it's called This Time with Alan Partridge. And what else are we going to be talking we'll about? We'll also have the latest instalment in our long-running non-anniversary series, the non-significant anniversary of a, well, fairly significant cultural event this time, but um, stick around for that. So, Kate, this is quite exciting. Alan Partridge is back on the BBC after quite a long hiatus of doing various other projects Mm. and we were treated to the first two episodes of This Time with Alan Partridge which is coming to BBC One at the end of this month. What's what's the sort of format? Tell us what you're... It's a, it was sort of trumpeted a few years ago as being a a sort of Brexit Britain Alan Partridge. So Alan is, is ripe for a return because of Brexit. So, you know, we were all wondering what what this was, was going to be and whether it was going to directly address the issues or be sort of, you know, make him more right wing or something like that. Yeah. It's kind of rather more subtle. It's a mm. magazine format TV show, a kind of one show style ripoff. And it's it's almost that you get the sense that they feel it was all right to do it now and that Alan could be returning to the television because of the slow decline in our culture, as evidenced by Brexit, rather than anything more specific. So, they so just can, they can get away with doing something this crappy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not crappy in terms of the quality of the, the project, no, yeah. but like the, the show itself might be made yeah. in post-Brexit Britain. So the format of the of the show is a sort of a middle-aged man called John Backshall on a sofa with a, a young woman called Jenny Gresham. And so that's sort of very old-fashioned dynamic between older presenter and younger younger work woman who's one in a million and you know hand on the knee and all that kind of thing that that might actually happen in this day and age when actually it would have been you know terribly outdated 10 years ago and alan is brought on as a sort of to, to keep the seat warm for this this guy who's sick yeah john backshaw goes it? into hospital with some kind of heart complaint and alan is brought on to just like keep the seat warm for a couple of of episodes so it's quite it's quite a nice subtle premise and he also one thing that's very good about it is that they don't they didn't really ramp up the idea of the dynamic between him and his his co-presenter Jenny Gresham too much. They sort of are quite professional with each other. Yeah, it's not he's not sleazy. It's not like a cringingly embarrassing kind of older man younger woman thing. It's just it's just they're kind of like getting on with their job with their microphones and it's not particularly great. You know, watching this it makes you quite pleased they haven't tried to make him more sort of Brexity. If anything, he's gone in the other direction and and talking about this after the screening. 
Coogan mentioned that he sort of tried to move with the times a little bit. So he's got a rough sense of, of what he should be doing and what's acceptable now. And obviously he just, just misses the mark a little bit every time. So it's actually kind of less in-your-face cringe than than some of the previous yes. Partridge incarnations, isn't he, it? Um, Coogan said that Alan has developed in the sense to be more like David Cameron, so he's economically conservative but socially liberal. <laughs> and there is a little bit of it, without ruining any of the plots, there, there's a bit of a kind of moral heart to Alan because he does end up exposing a couple of unsavoury characters in the first couple of episodes. And I like the fact that he, I mean, as he's become more more and more part of the national fabric, yeah. they don't need to give his backstory no. at all. So the comedy has become a lot more nuanced. And, and if you've ever read, we've both read the books, yeah. haven't we? They're extremely strange now, the books. Yeah. And the, the two Gibbons brothers who write them with Steve Coogan, they're just like, they're completely off the wall. They're more like Tristram Shandy than, yeah. than the Alan Partridge of knowing Which me. Indeed, know Coogan, Coogan was in the film, yeah, film version of Tristram Shandy. It's all yeah. footnotes and, you know, the sound of someone scratching their anus over half a page. God. <laughs> script, 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 oh, script. Uh, that's a really interesting point. I wonder what someone coming to the character for the first time would make of this, but maybe they're just not bothered about that. I think they don't care. And, yeah. and actually, one of the brothers said something quite funny about writing it someone you know asked the obvious question of oh what about the uh, the weight of expectation on on your shoulders because of course it was originally written by Armando Inucci and Peter Bainham and Patrick and Marber Coogan, yeah, and Coogan yeah. and, all that kind of. and then these two fanboys came in a few years ago and actually started started writing it for them and one of the brothers said we can't fuck it up because the good stuff's come before so essentially we're just creating bonus content <laughs> so all this is bonus content it's quite an unromantic view of sort of writing your <laughs> writing for your childhood hero isn't it how funny did you find it i did find it very funny i think it opens with a sort of very close up out of focus shot of alan's lips and mouth as he's trying to sort of create some moisture in his mouth and he's calling out for a, for a glass of water and it zooms out from there and that's kind of symptomatic of the approach. This it's you're quite close up, you're quite in his face. You get to see him both on screen and because they keep cutting to various clips and interviews and things. It's a live broadcast, but they keep cutting so you get to see him sort of off camera as well. So it's quite rich in that way and some of it's quite subtle. Like I, I went back and watched some of the recent things he he'd done for Sky, like uh, this Scissor Dial, which are which are fantastic, but they're very larger than life partridge and this although he's still performing it it brings it perhaps a little bit closer to some of the stuff he did in the late 90s and early noughties the i'm alan partridge you know Mm. you you get i feel like you do get to see the real the real man and it allows it allows coogan to do all the things he's really good at you know as we saw in the laurel and hardy film we watched you know he is a re- he is quite a good physical comedian. physical comedian in quite a kind of small way. He can do small actions like in Laurel and Hardy, his sort of cracking of the egg and things like that. He's very he's very good at that, and his vocal delivery as well. It, it's full of all those kind of partridgey things of like over pronouncing words like you know drink that can slate sate or quench your thirst. <laughs> <laughs> There's an extended mime demonstration in which he shows oh God, how you yes. can go to the toilet on a train without touching anything so to keep your hands clean so using your elbow it's sort of Jean-Claude Van Damme meets Marcel Marcel yeah. or something like <laughs> it reminded me of in I'm Alan Partridge when he's trying to work out whether he can wash his entire body with two small hotel <laughs> yes. soaps do you remember so he's, he goes all the way around and then down around the gusset as well and under both armpits but it has some some moments of kind of humor that I almost thought in the way that 
something as ahead of its time as Brass Eye now looks slightly 90s. Yeah. It had moments that reminded me of the of uh, knowing me knowing you with Alan Partridge in terms yes. of the kind of slightly clunky fictional guests that they get on. And I just felt I felt I find that a bit cold to watch when right. you've got you know your 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 cyber terrorist or your uh, I can't remember who any who the other guests were, but you just that sense of like okay, this is a made-up person and we're watching him interview yeah. them. But then it has these the most amazing surreal moments of comedy like he he's doing this little kind of um separate feature on hand washing. And he goes to see a hygienist who's called... Jean something. Hi, yeah, she's called Jean. So it's like hygiene kind of thing. And then she basically shows him a video of how to wash your hands most thoroughly and most successfully. Mm. And you think you're going to get like a doctor's video or something. And it's like a curiously erotic video of a pair of women's hands like sliding over each other. In the interlacing soap, so. fingers. Interlacing yep. fingers. And it's like everyone watching it just like stopped. And Alan himself is just like transfixed by this thing. And he's like, are they your hands? And she goes, yeah, I can show you in the sink over there if you want. It's like, no, 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 it's okay. And I think, How did they come up with a sexy hand washing interlude? <laughs> or or, the, or the, 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 when he's talking to an anchor who, who contradicts somehow every single thing he says. And he becomes obsessed with just getting her to agree with him on one point at the end. So to see that dialogue written down would be fascinating. How yeah, sort of- that's a really brilliantly written thing. And one of the things they talked about, there was a little Q&A afterwards, as, as we said, with Coogan and the, and the Gibbons brothers and his co-star, Susanna Fielding, mm. who, plays, who plays Jenny Gresham, who's really good. It's not improvised. It's very tightly mm, written. Joyless. Um, yeah. So it's very, <laughs> they don't laugh. It's very, clinically, it's very clinically done. Whereas I think, you know, some of the earlier stuff was was a bit looser I liked the because I have very fond memories of knowing me knowing you and I obviously watched the tv version but I had a tape of the radio version which came a couple of years before Mm. which I just endlessly listened to um so that's kind of like bedded deep in my psyche somewhere and the thing that often happens with the guests there is you know obviously Alan ends up you know inevitably insulting them or you know well famously in the last one he kills he kills a man uh, accidentally shoots a man there's a bit of that in here as well like I always remember the the episode of Knowing Me Knowing You where he brings on a child prodigy and he gets so annoyed with him that he starts sort of saying well have you got hair on your chest yeah. you know can you can you talk this low you know I'm 37 <laughs> and then eventually he just slaps him in the face <laughs> and th- there's a little there's a little bit of that that Alan that comes back here as well, which uh, which I enjoyed. I liked um, hearing Susanna Fielding talk about how she was uh, inspired by Susanna Reid for her yes. for her part. Yeah. Very kind of bold thing to say. And her other sort of inspiration was really looking at these women anchors and just being inspired by the sight of women. Her words were trying not to let on how desperately disappointed they are with their partner on the sofa. <laughs> and it is that kind of that grim faced, upbeat sort of you know, determination to just bat it out of the periphery of your vision and get on talking to the camera. And Lynn is in it as well. Yes. Which is surprising. So there are these kind of moments where you get, you know... His assistant, yeah, his long-suffering assistant. The cameras, will they'll stop a take, but we'll kind of continue seeing what's going on when the microphones are being taken off and stuff. And and Lynn is... uh, Lynn has developed, hasn't she? She's very much, like, become a sort of 
advocate for him she's sort of fighting his i mean she's always been on his side but um, she's pluckier yeah like, she is yeah she's a bit fire and brimstone and she says yeah. things like don't forget there's a vacancy here yeah. now kind yeah. of thing so the the sort of sense of his uh slightly hectoring maternal figure is much stronger she's not the mousy woman that she was so he's obviously made a decision to write her slightly differently I thought. but the one thing they have managed to sustain really well through the whole sort of partridge narrative arc and it's the same every time so I don't it should feel sort of tired and repetitive but he's always trying for the second series or the job or you know he's always got his eye on the next opportunity and that somehow gives gives it both an air of desperation and gloom but also sort of hopefulness and and opt- I don't know it's it's there's something there's something kind of genius about that and even though that's always his his motivating factor I, I never failed to be kind of hooked by it yeah again he's like they could have written him as a sort of you know he's given up and he's a kind of sad sack depressed middle-aged guy but he's not he's still got the he's still got the energy even though he keeps like pulling his suit jacket in and going I'm just filling in I'm just filling in and he knows that you know hopefully he's going I mean it'd be interesting to see what happens we only saw two episodes so we don't know yeah. how it's going to develop yeah. in terms of his 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 job yeah I think it's like I, I still find him more funny to watch when he's not working right I find him more funny in the travel tavern or the, yeah. the static home or trying to negotiate a, a small video deal for like a, <laughs> a a fire company or something like that but it's it's nice to see him back in the role that we first saw him in and it's kind of, I, there's nobody in in our culture who is fictional and who has developed over the course of 25 years like mm. I can't think of any other examples mm. of this made up person who has grown old and whose way of talking has developed and changed and you know. I think also for our generation maybe I'm Alan Partridge is such a kind of a university we didn't really watch television at all but um one of my one of my friends had a TV in their room. This sounds like I'm talking about like the... <laughs> 60s. Early 70s or the 60s. Well, no one like... can see us. They don't know how old we are. I'm 83 tomorrow. That's the one thing we would we would gather around weekly to watch. It was it must have been the second season of I'm Alan Partridge. Mm. Um, I just had one one quote that I would like to yeah please repeat. roll it out. So John Backshall, the the ill presenter that he's standing in for, described his lovely co-host Jenny Gresham as one in a million and. And Partridge says, <clears throat> so by that reckoning, there are 65 women of your standard or higher in the country. <laughs> it's that brilliant Tourette'sy inability not to take something onto its logical conclusion, <laughs> isn't it? It's, it's wonderful. This time with Alan Partridge is coming to BBC One at the end of this month. So this week... 19 years ago, in February 2000, was the release of Danny Boyle's movie, The Beach. Danny Boyle has since said that halfway through making the film, he realised he didn't like any of his characters. So he doesn't have particularly fond memories of it himself. It's funny, this, it was quite a big deal at the time, wasn't it? But you were, you were saying that it's got an incredibly low rating on <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. It's got about 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. But I, I mean, I remember this as being one of those strangely immersive experiences so you know you you had the cd with moby and all saints on it you went to thailand because you'd read the book you wore the the loon pants the long hemp trousers because of dicaprio's character and you saw the film and i just remember it being one of those things that was almost like a lifestyle thing at the time a little glimpse of what your gap year could be yeah the gap year that you just had and were boring everybody about within halls yeah i mean the book came out in in 96 and 
obviously was a huge bestseller. So I guess there probably was a sort of five or six year period where this was like very much part of part of the zeitgeist written by Alex Garland, very young, his first first novel. I mean, kind of transformative experience to have that. And it was, there weren't many books. I remember in my peer group, you know, you'd pass around albums that everyone was, was listening to. But although we were reading, you know, like we were doing English, we weren't like passing around books no. that everyone had to read you know so this was kind of the only one I can think yeah. of really from that period there was definitely a point where everyone on the bus was reading it yeah it's it was quite cold I mean the, I remember that it was quite a sort of druggy experience watching it but it was cold as well because that remember that awful Tilda Swinton character and that sort of scene where don't, don't they shag each other DiCaprio and Tilda Swinton and it just seems so unlikely he has se- yeah I, th- I think he has sex with a, f- with a, f- with with a, a few, few of the, the, the women are there to offer themselves to him and yeah. then he's in that backpackers hostel and the, the mad crazy Robert Carlyle yeah. figure pops up <clears> from the bunk bed and says oh, don't go to the full moon parties or whatever it is yeah that's the bit I remember most in a way from both the book and the film it has this I mean the opening is straight out of Treasure Island isn't it it's Billy Jones dying and leaving a map yeah. it's, it's, it's as you say Robert Carlyle's character Mr Duck Daffy or, or Mr Duck who then sort of starts appearing to him in these little kind of dreamy hallucinations I think my memory from from the film is that it does capture some of that kind of the trippiness of of the book and I guess it's like partly that incredibly lush you know luminescent sea thick green foliage that kind of hyper real landscape of the island which you know was a combination of we discover now was a combination of a bit of cgi and like Rampant driving a bulldozer <laughs> this is the the biggest perhaps the biggest impact of of the beach the book yeah. and the movie of course was that it sort of destroyed thailand so kpp where much of it was filmed Every day, 5,000 people go to Kopi P. And I have been among those people. I did it like a couple of years ago or something. And it's getting on those little motorboats is like piling on top of a, you know, one of the buses in India where everyone's on the top. There's so many people going over at any one time. And you get there and there are these tiny stretches of beach covered in sun cream lotion and wrappers and things. And they've actually had to, to close it down. I mean, it's like the, the, the country has suffered as a result of the flocks and flocks of people who went there to chase the, uh, the garland dream, maybe. And at the time, the um, some Thai authorities, you know, took the film company to court for changing, just sort of taking it upon themselves to just change the structure of the beach. Yes, <laughs> and for also just giving it like a, a bad image. I mean, I remember Bridget Jones came out a few years later, didn't it? And do you remember that she's going to Thailand and that strange guy on the plane gives her this ceramic snake that, of course, is filled with cocaine and she ends up in a Thai prison. <laughs> that whole... <laughs> that whole reputation of it so that's just being a place do. for yeah. drugs and sweat and, you know, full moon parties where you drink Thai whiskey out of one of those sandcastle buckets with a long straw. I mean, they, I, you know, they, they do do that. I remember walking along one of the beaches in um, Koh Panyang, I think it was, and this guy coming towards me literally with his eyes just spinning because he, he had taken in so much of this whiskey and he didn't know where he was. And it was a full moon party. He was just drinking it out of a sandcastle bucket. And was this on the beach, the beach of the beach? Um, no, it was one of the other ones. What, but, was, yeah. what was the beach beach like? Was it I don't remember it much about it. It was just and so. Horrible, or was it, it was so. It felt so small and 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 grey and you know and littered and, and just the, one of those things where you can't get an, an inch of it because there's so many people. But of course, I was one of those people. So it just shows it's on it's on the trail. But yeah, you know, as you said, they've had to shut it down. There was just one kind of slightly horrifying line. Thanks to pollution from litter, boats, and sun cream, it is estimated that more than eighty percent of the coral around Maya Bay has been destroyed. I wonder what it'd be like to watch now. I think I couldn't watch it; it'd be too dated. 
there are a lot of things that date it right to that period. As you say, you know, Moby's... Moby and Pure Shores by All Saints. William Orbit. I mean, I don't even know who William Orbit is, really, but I just I know that he's involved. And, um, and just DiCaprio from that period is just... There was... I don't know how substantiated this is, but definitely Ewan McGregor was originally tipped for the role because obviously it was a Danny Boyle production. And he felt very aggrieved that they'd given it to Leonardo DiCaprio. <gasps> he was basically made to believe that, and he fell out with Danny Boyle. Um, There's going to be for, a new train spot. For many for years after, after that. It was a while before they worked, again, uh, wow. worked together again. What I don't know, and there's been speculation about this, was whether there was a suggestion that the studio or the, the money men or whatever said, you've got to cast DiCaprio and you've got to make the protagonist American. Mm. Which, you know, financially is possibly possibly the right decision in terms of... In terms of um, yes, I was reading just now somewhere, it is thought that possibly the success of the film at the box office may have something to do with the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio was in it. Yeah. After like, Titanic. Off the back of, yeah, a fairly... <laughs> Little little known B movie called, but you know it's still got twelve percent. So in terms of his uh, his oeuvre, it hasn't gone down that yeah, well. And well, I shan't be watching it again. Boyle's okay, and Garland's doing okay. I think so. <laughs> exactly. And Ewan McGregor and indeed Leonardo DiCaprio. So yeah, it's only yeah, th- it's only Thailand. It's only Thailand that's fucked. <laughs> so yes, happy nineteenth anniversary to the beach and. That's about all we've got time for this week. And we will be back with something else exciting. Something exciting in about a month. So see you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. It was recorded by us this week. Incompetently. And produced by Nick Hilton, who did a very good job of fixing our mistakes. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed this week's New Statesman podcast, why not give it a favourable review on iTunes? And why not come and buy tickets for an event that I'm doing on March the 6th in the week of International Women's Day called Me Too in the Age of Trump. Just look at newstatesman.com forward slash events. Tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.